Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. What's up, y'all? Kyle here. Just wanted to come on real quick to let y'all know that this is actually going to be a two-part episode. So today we'll be releasing part one. At a later date, we will be releasing part two. But we got to sit down with Ryan Diener of Quail Forever. And the conversation was so good and so rich. We couldn't just stop. So we we had to keep going and, and get to the bottom of what happened to Quail in the state of Arkansas talk through the history. So we're going to release the entire interview, but we're going to break it up into two parts. So stick around, make sure y'all check out part one and part two when it's released later. And I hope you guys enjoy. You're listening to the Ozark podcast presented by Inland. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kyle Hill. Welcome back to the Ozark Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Veet, and I am joined by co-host of the show and my good buddy, Adam Trees. How's it going? It's good, man. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. Watching this storm roll in, maybe. Yeah. It's, I saw tomorrow the high is uh, like 84. That's pretty low. Yeah, it's going to get low this weekend. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. We're coming up on hunting season. We're sitting here. We're uh, end of, kind of end of August. Um, yeah. Getting close to... Middle of August. Yeah, middle of August. But by the time this releases... <laughs> That's true. You got to think about the audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're coming up on hunting season and I don't know about you, but I just, I got my new arrows. I'm getting my bow set up. Nice. I'm getting, I'm getting ready. What arrows did you get? Uh, so I actually went with the recommendation of a previous guest we've had on the podcast, Devin Howland, shout out to Ozark Archery. Yeah. Um, he's got me on the Victory Rip TKOs. Nice. The Elites. Nice. 250 spine. So nice. I just got those. So he's going to help me build those arrows and and put together a, a slightly heavier arrow. Is he doing the full arrow tuning that he talked about? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Which, if you guys haven't heard that, um, feel free to go back. I forget which episode, but Devin Howland, Ozark Archery, uh, dude is like a doctor when it comes Daniel to Daniel says both. episode four. Episode four? Way back. Way back, yeah. We yeah. were sitting here. We were sitting right here yeah. in, in your house. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just a phenomenal, phenomenal, um, amazing amount of knowledge that he has about Yeah, that bows. whole episode just went over my head, and I consider myself a pretty <laughs> yeah. knowledgeable archer. He's a true super tuner. Yeah. Um, so well, that's cool. Yeah. So I'm getting ready for it. But before we get to deer, before we get to hunting, um, something that's been on our mind for and on our radar for a while is like we've had several people reach out to us and friends and listeners say like, I, I want to know, I hear about some of the people, uh, some who we've had on the podcast talk about quail hunting back in the day. And we've heard stories all our, all our lives of like mm. there used to be huge quail populations up here in North of Arkansas and in Arkansas in general and in the Ozarks. And so, um, so we've actually, we've had this, this meeting with, uh, 
our guest here today for, uh, it's been in the works for quite some time, um, but we, we finally have the honor of, of having with us today Mr. Ryan Diener of Quail Forever. He is the Arkansas State Coordinator for the organization, and uh, he has been kind enough to bless us with his time. And so we're, uh, we're excited to welcome Ryan to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I, I do apologize. I've been so very busy and hard to get hold of. No, man, you're good. Lots of travel and lots of meetings and just good stuff going on. So Yeah. Well, thanks for making the trip up here. Um, we did not expect you to do that. We can always do a phone call, but we love having our guests here in person. Yeah. Oh, it's way better in person. It's me. always way better. It's always way better. So and you're from Little Rock, right? Yeah, I'm from the Little Rock, Rock area. area. I live out near Cabot, so okay. yeah, Central Arkansas. So he drove up all the way just to be on the podcast. Right? Yeah, pretty cool. Short stop this morning, or most of the day in Russellville. So busy interviewing, hiring new people on, but yeah, yeah. might as well. I was already halfway here. Right? Yeah, yeah. Might well, as I appreciate well. it. Yeah, we're, we're excited to have you. Um, before we jump in, we 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 really want to go into like the the depth of of quail and everything you need to know about quail in Arkansas and in the Ozarks specifically. Um, but before we get to that, we always like to just know who we're talking to. Uh, so just a little bit of background on yourself, where you're from, how you kind of got into what you're doing, your career, and um, and just a little bit about you. Sure. So um, I'm originally from East Central Missouri. I grew up on the the northern border of the Ozarks. Okay. Um, so I consider myself an Ozark person, although most people in Missouri, when I tell them where I'm from, they they wouldn't consider that the Ozarks. But we'll count little, it. Little known region. So I, I actually grew up in Warren County, Missouri, in a little town of Marthasville. It's in the the Missouri River Hills, which is a short ten mile buffer north of the Missouri River with very dissected, rocky, hilly landscape that looks just as rugged as the Central Ozarks, mm. but it's a strip of rocky, hilly terrain that's ten miles wide, just north of the river. Okay, and then south of the Missouri River, you have the Northern Ozark foothills before you get into the the actual like heart of the Ozarks in Missouri. So, right, interesting area. I I loved it growing up. I grew up, you know, hunting and fishing like most kids that grew up relatively out in the country. Um, family. Extended family on a farm and stuff like that. But, you know, where I grew up, 10 minutes in any direction, I could be in the heart of the Ozarks. 10 minutes north, I would be in the flat farmland that used to be prairie in Missouri. Yeah. You know, an hour east, and I'd be at the confluence of the Missouri-Mississippi River. I grew up near the Missouri River in the bottom. So it's just a super diverse landscape, mm-hmm. and I just always had an interest in that stuff yeah, my I, entire life. I was going to say, a, a kind of a, a transition area like that, I'm sure you had, like, a lot of unique opportunities for hunting and fishing and just terrain types and where you might be hunting in terms of landscape oh absolutely like i said i I, 10 minutes in any direction i would be in a landscape that would look almost completely different from the other direction that's cool it is cool and you know that just fostered it from a young age with me i am one of those few people that you know i knew from i had other evolving interests but i've known since i was probably in fourth or fifth grade that I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. So cool. I just worked the rest of my wow. life to make that happen. That's Dude. awesome. You know, no, most people, so you know, people talk about that, but like that, I decided that and, you know, it was, and it was always a wildlife biologist. Missouri has, a, you know, a fairly well put together department of conservation. And, you know, I met biologists as a young kid, whereas most states and the rest of the country, like people's experience as a kid is like, oh, I'm at the conservation agent or the game warden yeah. type person, right? It's like, I never grew up wanting to be a game warden. I knew I wanted to be a wildlife biologist because that's who I was interacting with there. You were more on like the the science side, the research side, understanding like the or even just the ecology of things. Getting to work on the land and, and do management. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. You know, actual management to improve habitat. Yeah. It's 
it's been my passion my whole my whole life really Dude. so um went to school found an interest opportunities there got into conservation uh leadership with uh conservation federation of missouri went to the university of missouri where i got my degree in fishes and wildlife sciences i actually had decided um my interest while i was in school was in waterfowl and wetlands okay biology mm-hmm. um took a couple of jobs while i was in college doing that had a couple other you know random wildlife jobs too like anybody does and uh had gotten out of school was working at a conservation area on a wetlands area um and stumbled across a job posting a friend of mine sent me a job posting that closed that day for a pheasants forever job in northwest kansas i had ever i had never actually heard of pheasants forever at that point i was familiar and i actually knew of quail forever i had met the regional rep in missouri okay i was familiar with quail forever and i knew you know, at the time we saw Quail Unlimited, and I knew both those reps from Missouri for those groups because I had been involved in conservation leadership organizations and stuff. Didn't, at the time, know that Pheasants Forever even existed, mm-hmm. although it's the same organization. It's yeah. just two different brands. Okay, gotcha. Uh, yeah, my buddy sent me a job posting that closed that day, so I went home and <laughs> put an application in. And, <laughs> for like, Northwest Kansas. Yeah, I had, a, had an interview, like, literally two weeks later, and two weeks after that I was moving 600 miles from home. Wow. For funny enough, when I when I accepted that job, um, you know I'm from Eastern Missouri, yeah, and uh, my supervisor that that hired me, I didn't I couldn't tell what he was saying. I he hired me for a position in Oberlin, Kansas, which is in Northwest Kansas. Okay, my 22 year old ears heard Overland, oh, and I just oh, thought Overland Park, Overland Park, like right <laughs> no. outside of KC. Yeah, I'm moving to you know Eastern Kansas, right outside Kansas City, and I had already accepted the job, and it's like. Then I go home and punch it. It's like, that ain't right. And then I saw the email that got sent me. It's like Oberlin. And I punch it. It's like, oh, that's another five and a half hours west. Oh, okay. no. Well, that's cool. You you weren't like too specific on where you wanted to go, but you knew you wanted that, that job. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I, cool. I, I liked it. It sounded good. good. Yeah. And Didn't actually, care for, where it was. Yeah. For a, you know, I said I, I knew I always wanted to be a wildlife biologist. And for a good long while, I had made friends with the, the Quail Forever rep, and she was involved in a lot of conservation leadership stuff with me, too. And and I knew stuff going on there, um, and you know, I talked to her about that job when, before I got the interview. But I had actually made up my mind at some point that I wanted to work in in private lands too. And mm-hmm. private lands wildlife management is now 100 percent where my heart lies. And, okay, and helping private landowners do all the work, which is important here in Arkansas, because as I'm sure you've heard from others, you know, the state's 87 percent privately owned. That's right. So if we're going to make any difference in the state of Arkansas. When it comes to wildlife management, private lands is mm. where it's at. I never heard that statistic. Yeah. yeah. 87. How does that compare to other states? For eastern states, it's actually not bad. Okay. So eastern, I'm talking anything east of like that Oklahoma, Kansas line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Missouri, Missouri is like 93% privately owned. Okay. Um, Arkansas at 87% has a little bit more public land. Mm-hmm. Most of that mm-hmm. is forest service lands. Right. The, you know, the, we actually have three forests. In Arkansas, um, the the two of them own a big chunk of land, and then there's a small one out in the Delta. Mm-hmm. Um, but and then the state eight, you know, game and fish. I'm not even going to say what the actual. Per- I don't think it's a, a high percentage. Most of that public land in the state is Forest Service land. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but yeah, so huh. the eastern U.S. Most of the states, a lot of them are hovering around that 90% privately owned because right. there's just not a lot of public lands large vast expanses of public uh-huh. lands in the east whereas 
And then in the Great Plains, there's not a lot. Kansas is even more privately owned than we are mm-hmm. here. So then you have that stretch to the Great Plains where it's actually more private because it's a bunch of ranch and farmland. Farmland, right. And then once you get like Rocky Mountain, Intermountain West and West Coast, huge chunks of public I bet. land, right? So all those then, mountains. Then you, then you go to like 87% publicly owned and 13% mm-hmm. private. Oh, it really flips that much. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. So, but say, is it safe to say though that the majority of land in the United States as a whole is privately owned? Or do they offset each other? Like, is it mostly 50-50? That's a That's good a, question. It's is. probably pretty close, okay. really. Huh. Because you, you have it it's, it's pretty close to having When you add in the Great Plains, if I'm just visual, visualizing, I've never looked at the stats yeah, for the look, entire country. Like Wyoming. I'm going I'm to look real quick. You know, Yellowstone National Parks, is that... We're not just talking public hunting land. Right, just public land. Just publicly public land owned in general. land. I'm and, and most of that's BLM. And all the coast, probably. Every part of the coast is... Pro- you know, most of the part, there's the easement of beaches and, and right. ports. Um, that's quite so, public. So this says, and this is Wikipedia, so who knows? It says nearly forty percent of the United States is public land. Yeah. So I that's would, I would guess that. that's not bad. Most of that is in the western states and Alaska. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Alaska. Fair enough. Because Alaska's mostly public land. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. But, but I mean, states like Utah and Idaho, like also vastly public land. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but if we bring it back to Arkansas and yeah. we're talking Arkansas, we're, we just we just say pri- private lands is a huge deal because ninety basically ninety yeah. percent of our land was privately is owned. privately owned. Yep. So if you're going to manage a, the resource, yep, spend your m- time and money on private lands. Absolutely. Okay. And and we're doing a better job about that now. But so I, I gained an interest in, in private lands management. Like I said, moved to Northwest Kansas almost accidentally. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so that was 12 years ago this November. So I've been with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever for, for 12 years. Um, spent a, a couple of years in Northwest Kansas, which opened my mind to a whole different type of environment. You know, I was working in native rangeland, which is just native prairie that's being actively grazed as working lands. Um, but, I mean, you know, you you look at on the landscape here and where I grew up in Missouri, it's fescue and bermuda here where i grew up it was all fescue so like the idea that there's grazing lands that's all native grasses and wildflowers and mm-hmm. there's cattle on here but we also have prairie chickens and quail and mm. pheasants and stuff like that it was a big difference for me yeah um so i took a lot of that and moved back to missouri with quail forever I was a farm bill biologist in my home area in missouri for five years and now i've been down here in arkansas for five years as the state coordinator um leading the habitat delivery program here in the state so here in Arkansas now, I've been here for five years. I, I work in a partnership position um, with Quail Forever and the Natural Resources Conservation Service, or NRCS, um, which is the, the government arm that, with the USDA, delivers the Farm Bill programs. So Farm Bill programs, what is that? Yep, so the, the federal Farm Bill, it's uh, we, we refer to it as the Farm Bill, but it's the same bill that also has like food stamps in it, dairy relief stuff, farm bill and conservation titles, things. And the vast majority of that bill that gets passed every four years um, is actually not farm-related stuff, but we call it the farm bill. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the majority of the money goes towards other programs. Um, and then and then you have the conservation title of the farm bill, which is like things like that fund, like CRP. And then the other CRPs run through F, the Farm Services Agency, but NRCS 
does the planning for it. And across a lot of the great plans in other states, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever Biologists do a lot of the CRP planning and helping people manage those lands to make it quality wildlife habitat at the same time. Okay. Mm. You know, that's a program to help set aside degraded or, or less usable cropland that's not as profitable for them. Right. And at the same time, we're getting benefits for water quality, wildlife habitat, things like that, soil erosions, conservation savings. Um, but then NRCS delivers EQIP, the Conservation Stewardship Program, a, a whole array of other conservation programs, um, you know, WRE, WRP, our Wetlands Reserve Program, Wetlands Reserve Easements, that's all through NRCS. So a lot of these other programs that aren't as well known perhaps, but do a lot of the a lot of the lifting as well when it comes to habitat conservation, just conservation in general in this country. You know, everybody's familiar with WRP, right? Ducks and wetland stuff. And, sure. But here, you know, that there's a lot of potential for that to do upland management as as buffers along those things too. So um, but those are programs that are voluntary programs that farmers and ranchers and landowners can enroll into and get assistance for conservation planning based on their goals and what they would like to see. Mm. They might only be interested in like, how can I improve my water quality and and grazing? How can I improve my forest health? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we deal with those interests and there's a lot of people that come to those offices every day asking, how can I improve my forest health? But I'm also very interested in improving wildlife habitat on my property. Right. And that's where quail forever comes in. So we have uh, a team of, eight farm bill biologists here in the state of Arkansas now that work. Those are positions that are in partnership with NRCS and the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Mm -hmm. And they work out of those local county NRCS offices and they will go out and meet with private landowners that have those interests, write them a wildlife management plan, help them find those programs that best fit their goals to get cost share to implement the activities in the plan to manage their own land for for wildlife habitat. And when when you say cost share, you're talking about like, actually helping private landowners pay for the the improvements that they're making to the habitat. Right. Yep. So they So what is, yeah, what does that look like? Cuz like if I'm a if I'm a private landowner and I'm like, "Man, I want to do I want to like increase the or improve the habitat, enhance the habitat for quail because I want to maybe one day hunt quail on my property, but I don't really know what to do and to do all that it's going to cost x amount of dollars." There you're saying the farm bill program will actually help pay for some of that. Yep. So, and and And, is there criteria on the land too? Okay. So yeah, so there, there are many, the farm bill programs are the main federal programs that we can use. So there are federal local, there are federal state and local programs in a lot of places to help, to help do this. And our job is to visit with the landowners, help them write a plan that meets their goals. Mm -hmm. And we, we outline to them like, here's the best things you can do. And, you know, and we work with them, like, the things that, okay, I'm willing to do this. I, I don't think I can make this happen. And we, we work with the landowner, get a plan together, and then really it's finding those programs. So, again, like, whether it's NRCS programs and the Environmental Quality Incentives Program or EQIP is kind of the main one. And under that we have initiatives like Working Lands for Wildlife where we work with cattle producers that might want to convert something to native warm season grasses so replanting natives that are quality forage, but also going to be much better for the wildlife value on that property. Mm. So they can still get good summer forage that you might not have if it was all fescue and better forage quality and more forage through the growing season. 
And at the same time, we're going to be improving that property for wildlife. And that's a win-win. And that's where we'd like to work. We like to make, we, we like to be able to make producers more profitable on their lands. And at the same time, increasing the value of that wildlife habitat. So it's really truly a win-win for producers and for wildlife on a landscape. Yeah. And you know, that, that type of program really kind of sells itself. Like it is a win-win. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is good. This is a great thing. And you know, it, it's something that people can get behind and producers can get behind and that program's growing in the state. Yeah. You basically um, get like a, from what it sounds like, you get like a custom plan to help meet the goals that you want for your land. Absolutely. And that custom it's plan incredible. from, from those local biologists. So like we have those farm biologists, we have eight of them in the state. Most of them cover six to eight counties. Um, you know, and, and Game and Fish here has private lands biologists as well do the same thing. So um, do y'all work with them pretty closely? Yeah, we work very close. So we are in partnership with them. Okay. And it's it's really more boots on the ground to get more private lands habitat work done. They can write plans for landowners too. Our biologists work in NRCS offices and we're, we're very highly integrated into those offices with that partnership. So we can help walk them through step-by-step from application to ranking to checking out practices for those federal farm bill programs, hmm. which can be, I mean, it's it's a federal program. There's some paperwork involved. Sure. So it can be somewhat burdensome, but yeah. you know, our staff are there to help walk landowners through that and really explain everything. Really explain everything, assist them and make the process smooth and easy for everybody. Yeah. And we're providing, you know, wildlife um, expertise in those offices where a lot of the rest of the, the money that flows through those offices to producers is in a more agronomic fashion. So most of the other folks that work in those offices are, you know, agronomy focused people and that's what they went to college for. That's their expertise. So we're in there to help provide wildlife expertise and broaden the scope of, of the work that we can help produce in that, in that area, in that office for landowners. Gotcha. Mm. So say, say I'm Billy Bob and I own 200 acres out in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of the backwoods somewhere, that way, you know, way back there. If if I wanted to actually implement this program, how realistic is it to think that like in a couple of years I can actually hunt quail on my piece of property? If I've got 200 acres, like is that realistic to think that I can go through this program, do all the paperwork, get get, you know, go through everything and do what I need to do and then a couple of years I'll be able to hunt quail on my property? So <laughs> favorite favorite phrase of all biologists, it depends. Okay. Um <laughs> So, it, you know, something like that, and we get that question a lot from, yeah. from landowners. So it kind of depends on a, on a couple of things. Um, what does the surrounding landscape for, for your individual property look like? Okay, yeah. If you are in the heart of the Boston Mountains here in the Ozarks and you own 200 acres of, of woods and you're surrounded by a hundred thousand more acres of woods Just and basically roof. like no open fields or nothing like that. Right. And most of that woods is probably also relatively unmanaged. Mm-hmm. The idea that you could do, you could do management on your entire 200 acre farm and make it perfect quail habitat. Mm-hmm. We could thin trees. We can make open post Oak woodland. We can burn every two to three years. It could look phenomenal, but a quail is not going to fly a hundred miles from the nearest covey to find it. Mm. So it, Okay. Your, your surrounding landscape is important. Big and that doesn't mean that you shouldn't or we couldn't or shouldn't do that. So, you know, a lot of us, we are quail forever. Our interest is is quail habitat, but we are we are also the habitat organization as a whole. We care about 
the ecosystem and all the wildlife that benefit from the practices we do. So I will say this at the same time, if, if that does describe your situation and you're in a sea of something that's not quail habitat and quail is your purpose, by doing that, by doing like what we do to improve quail habitat really is just taking that land and the best way we can manage that to make quality quail habitat or quality wildlife habitat in general is to manage it to the state that that ecosystem should and wants to be in. So every piece of, you know, historically, let's say 200 years ago, um, most of the Ozarks was open woodlands, savannas, you know, true dense forest with thick canopy trees only occurred like right down near the creeks and maybe a little bit on, you know, your north and east slopes that were protected, mm-hmm. deeper soils, but like ridge tops that are rocky, south and west facing slopes that catch a lot of sunlight. That would have been very open woodland with ridge top prairies, any big broad open valleys, which describes kind of a lot of northwest Arkansas yeah. here. Right. We have hills on top, or ridge, ridge tops. tops are, you know, even from here you can spin around and see like ridge over there and we're surrounded by ridges. Yeah. Like this big broad flat area here. This would have been treeless prairie between these ridges. And there's areas like that throughout the Ozarks too. There's, you know, places in um, Boone County that look like that. There's places all over like Fulton and Sharp, the the central Ozark Highlands. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you find those landscapes where it's like, okay, you kind of come up on this high area and it's just like relatively flat, maybe slightly undulating hills. Yeah. That would have been prairie. You might have had a 5,000-acre prairie surrounded by woodlands in the mm-hmm. middle of the Ozarks there like that. And that wasn't that long ago. You're saying... It wasn't that long ago. Like 200 years ago, that would have been the case. Yep. And it, I mean, it was the case... Honestly, largely until here, we're going to get into some history of the Ozarks until basically post World War II. Huh. Yeah. So, so what the heck what happened? happened? <laughs> <laughs> Did someone just want to plant a lot of trees? Yeah. Well, <laughs> these trees just went crazy and started <laughs> dropping more seeds or something. What's going well, on? Well, the, the tree planting didn't occur until like the 80s through now. But um, no, so, you know, the Ozarks here in Arkansas and somewhat Missouri still had a relatively good burn culture, but, you know, the, the Arkansas being the natural state, again, I was trying to kind of lay the, lay the foundation, like what the state could and should look like naturally, really, like the ecosystems in the state, the way they should look, it's very hard to find places in the state that actually look like they like they did 100 years ago. Really? Yeah. So Interesting. most of our tree areas, our, our forests and woodlands are way thicker now and overstocked. Um, our grasslands are largely converted. They're not native grasslands anymore. They're fescue, Bermuda, Bahia. Yeah, and it's hard to find native grasses. It's hard anymore, to find. Right? So, and we were talking earlier, like, you know, okay, I can point out like five or six places here in northwest Arkansas where you can, well, here's a 30-acre remnant prairie that's still left and it's preserved and saved and mm-hmm. either has an easement or it got bought maybe by the National Heritage Commission. But like northwest Arkansas was largely native prairie and savanna and it's still relatively open, but it's not native prairie anymore. It's been mm. converted to non-native grasses. Gotcha. That okay. conversion um, is really a more a recent historical thing. And that's what really, um, I think that's the thing that confuses people to a degree or makes them think like, oh, well, things haven't changed over the last 50 years. That, that's what confuses me. Because I, I think about like when I, when I go and I drive out, just, you know, an hour outside of town or two mm-hmm. two hours outside of town, wherever it is, and I get out in the in the woods, in the forest, and, and we go hunt uh, one of our buddies' friends or one of our buddies' private lands. And 
to me, I'm like, man, all this is like untouched. When I go out there, it seems completely wild. Mm-hmm. I'm like, surely nothing has changed here in the last a thousand years because it's so it's so spread out. You don't, you know, you've got this cabin and it might be on a thousand acres and this cabin might be on 2000 acres and it just feels also like unmanaged and wild. I'm like, how could things have changed so much? You know, cause it's right. so, it's so rural. So you said it there yourself. The key word was unmanaged, right? Okay. So prior to European settlement of Arkansas, there were thousands of people living in the state already. We did have more lightning fires, but we had a lot of prescribed fire on the landscape that was set by Native Americans mm. to manage their local ecosystems, produce more vegetation for both them to eat and to attract game. Um, they they used that to manage their landscape for the food that was available to them naturally, whether it was certain tree species or things like that. So there was a lot of prescribed fire on the landscape or potential wildfire on the landscape that would have burned thousands, tens of thousands of acres at mm. a time. And most of the state of Arkansas had a historical fire regime of every, ranging, depending on where you're at in the state, two to four to six years. So historically, mm. most of Arkansas burned every two to six years. Really? Yeah. So, and we still have fire in the state. And honestly, for within the United States, like Arkansas is probably one of the best states in the country still for doing prescribed fire. We're relatively friendly to prescribed fire state and federal agencies, landowners still perform a lot of prescribed fire here in the state. It's relatively accepted, which is a good thing. We just need a lot more of it to happen. A lot of it is probably for duck hunters too, right? <laughs> right. For flooded timber. Well, I mean, so most of our prescribed fire in the state now is uh, the Forest Service. The Forest Service is the okay. single largest prescribed fire yeah. user in the state, and that's mm. managing for that's managing our forest. And, and, and honestly, like, I don't like using... For so much like again the arc the Ozarks I would refer to the Ozarks as woodlands. Okay. They were open, okay. mostly vastly open woodlands. Okay, and when I say open woodlands, I mean in most of those landscapes, especially any south and west facing slope, it was post oak open woodlands where you might have a tree every fifty to seventy five like feet. big mature trees, right? That yeah. would have had wow. potentially stand replacing fires during a drought. So like historically. A lot of the Ozarks might have burned on a year like this when we had a severe drought in the middle of summer. Something would catch fire, the Ozarks would burn. Yeah, and that yeah. you know, if you if you had a stand that hadn't had a bison herd or an elk herd come through it recently, and you had tall grasses, you would probably have a stand replacing fire. Then we would have new trees come up. Mm. Um, but again, those trees would be sparser. Um, you still had a fire every few years, so they wouldn't all survive, kind yeah. of thing. But Again, so the the landscape that I can picture in my mind, okay, vastly fewer trees than we have today. Wow, um, I had no idea. I, there's more trees on the landscape in Arkansas now. The, the, they're estimating that there are more trees on the landscape in Arkansas now than at any time in recent like ten thousand year history. Wow, I had no idea. There's a lot of trees out there. <laughs> we're we're way overstocked. So you know when when you think about a typical Ozark stand of woods. There's there's big trees out there, but there's also a whole bunch of, you know, six to four inch trees and a whole bunch of, you know, one and two inch trees too, right? And and what do you see on the understory? You you see those saplings and stuff, and do you see a lot of vegetation growing on the ground? Or is it leaf litter? Mm-hmm. Right. It's leaf litter, right? Yeah. Uh I'm I'm full right now. But yeah. I'll I'll maybe I'll take one right here. Sure. Um, you know, so what we see out there now is you know, most of those large trees that uh, that existed on the landscape are still there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they're just overgrown. Um, white settlement came in, fires slowed down a little bit, but we were taught to use that. And really burning in the Ozarks remained a cultural artifact for a very long time. There's still somewhat of a fire culture in the Ozarks, but you know when when we settled the Ozarks, most of the Ozarks has been cut over, so a lot of the Ozarks has been completely clear cut and grown back. So mm-hmm. there are places where we can go find three, four hundred year old trees, especially mm-hmm. some of these stands where they're gnarlier looking trees, short, you know, really rocky. They're not because they didn't make good timber. That's right. Um, but most of, the Ozarks, most of the Ozarks has been logged completely and regrown mm-hmm. at least once, if not twice. Okay. And most of the Ozarks has been grazed by hogs or cattle for the past 150 years. Um, until, again, more recent history. And that was common through the 60s in the Ozarks. They're almost, I mean, I know at least my history in the, the Missouri Ozarks, like it was basically free range in the Ozarks until this, like they would actually have roundups in the Ozarks and sort out the local people's hogs and, and mm. cattle um, that they just let roam just through cruising the woods. around. And it was, again, Flat it was fences. open woods. And yeah. That only works if it's open woods that's growing a bunch of grass and forbs and the mm-hmm. understory, right? So mm-hmm. for a long time, producers managed, managed the Ozarks in that way with fire to keep good grazing vegetation for those animals that were there. Um, that was the grazing and fire was the main way the Ozarks were managed from settlement all the way through the early 1900s mm-hmm. um and you said even before that na- like native americans native americans managed it like that burns. too and they they did prescribe burns to I manage that, that system and to attract you know and they did the same thing in the great plains you you burn an area we had we had herds of bison roaming all over arkansas too and elk mm-hmm. and deer yeah when we do the same thing now we do prescribe burning to attract deer and turkey and mm-hmm. quail right. to your property yeah native americans did the same thing so, so use fire to attract game to them. Right. Huh. I've always heard. And they were so and smart. It, I feel like you would know the answer to this, but we don't see as many native grasses. Like you go to, you know, a hay meadow or CRP. The grass actually looks different than a true native grass. It's really clumpy, right? Like almost you can tell where all the roots come together at once and then another patch here and maybe mm-hmm. it's sparse in between. Is that because the ground has been tilled up so much in the soil? This has changed so much. Um, in some places, so most of our native grasses are what makes our native grasses so much more wildlife friendly. Obviously, they're they're the native grasses in this landscape and in this part of the world. In the wildlife here are native wildlife that are adapted to those mm-hmm. habitats and, and grasses and species <laughs> that occur here too. Most of our native plant, most of our native grass species are clump farming grasses. So they grow in individual mm-hmm. clumps or mm-hmm. they might grow out and make clones and large clumps but they're they're yeah. usually clump farming most of our native grasses are not sod farming grasses so the real issue is with that like we went from and I, and I was building up to this just in a long roundabout way no, no 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 you're good so you know we 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 converted we converted vast areas of our landscape from those native grasses and and wildflowers that were there to non-native grasses and that basically has all occurred since since the end of World War II. So the main management, you know, and and we forget about this, and it's in that book, so the, the Michael Widener book. Yeah. 
that I mentioned earlier. A life um, with Gentleman Bob. A life with Gentleman Bob. Mike and, Widener and used, his kinfolk. That's right. <laughs> he 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 was a, a a turkey biologist with with Game and Fish. He wrote this book. It's a great little short read. Tons of fun little stories. He talks about hunting all over state, but he gives a a very good depiction of the history of the Ozarks and kind of where we were and what happened. But you know, before before the before World War II, management was by hand with cattle, pigs, and fire, mm-hmm. and hand saws, right? Like yeah. literal hand saws. Like very manual labor. <laughs> manual labor, right? So there were trains and stuff to, to, haul, to haul stuff out, but like it was manual labor to manage the landscape, and the landscape was largely native. It was, it was a, at that time already a human-made landscape. It had been altered. We, we've cut a bunch of trees. Mm. We are burning. We are grazing. We are altering the landscape, but it's largely still... Native species of vegetation, native grasses, wildflowers, native trees. You're not trees. able to just go till a thousand acres. In they a could, day. Right? right? So we didn't have mechanized farm equipment until after World War II. Right. Mm. After World War II, the, when the government didn't need tractors and dozers anymore, they just sold them to the public. Mm-hmm. The the landowners that got their hands on dozers and tractors in the Ozarks <laughs> are across the country. Really, at that time, is is when we as Americans and humans started to really begin to vastly alter in large swaths at a time Mm -hmm. our own landscape. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we went from having to do everything manually to like now we have a dozer with a chain and we can drag down brush and trees. We can try to disc up the Ozarks. And we just started making, at the time, you know, improvements and developments. It's human nature, right? We think we can improve upon everything. So Part of that was also like, oh, well, we were over in Europe and we saw these nice lush meadows of orchard grass and, and all these other, Timothy and all these other grasses that grow great in Central Europe and it seems similar to here. So, you know, at first in the 40s and 50s and 60s, we started planting orchard grass and Timothy, non-native grass species for pasture and hayland um, or just in general because we thought it was an improvement. It was better. We could make the landscape better by bringing these things in. And then, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s is when we started bringing more things like fescue was developed. Fescue is a, Kentucky 31 fescue is a developed cultivar grass of a non-native species from the Ural Mountain region of Eastern Europe and Western Russia. Dude, you know your grass. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Dude, I want to pick your brain. I'm loving this, I've gotten deep into grass this year. Yeah. (laughs) And I've been trying to learn all the the Bermuda strains. Yeah. But anyways, keep I didn't going. even interrupt I, you. I'm just no, impressed by no. your knowledge. I, after the podcast, I want to hear about. Are you pretty knowledgeable in grass and turf? At least He's those. Gotta be, man. Yeah. All right. I, I stay out of the turf cultivars because I, you know, I see your, you know, your 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 yard looks like a golf course, and I try <laughs> yeah, to keep you. I try to keep people from doing that, but that's okay. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So Uh-oh. You're, are so, you are you an mean, ecosystem or an ego system? Have <laughs> you seen that in here? Mm-hmm. I'm more of the ecosystem yeah. guy. My my yard would look like the pasture and the neighbors right there. Yeah, I'm surprised I, they didn't hate it. I, I would just let that grow up and I would burn it every year. But. Yeah, yeah. But you can make a lot if you hate it. Potentially, yeah. No, I mean, and that actually that neighbors looks pretty good. That's not. I mean, there's some broom sedge, but it actually looks like, like little blue stem from here. <laughs> yeah, so. they've hated every year, and, and I don't know what happened this year. They just in fact, like your neighbors it. probably like. I could manage that with fire and probably have quail there in a couple of years, but uh, <laughs> we'll go I talk could. to him after this. Yeah, yeah. for sure. We'll go knock on his door. Yeah. So like, you know, in the seventies, we, um, you know, sadly enough, my alma mater developed Kentucky 31 fescue and started promoting it all over the place. Mizzou? 
Yeah, so we promoted Kentucky Third One Fescue, which oh, come on, most modern people, most modern biologists would claim like the the development of fescue and planting it all over the central and eastern U.S. is largely blamed for the demise of quail. Oh no, um, because <laughs> fescue fescue is a sod farming grass. Yeah, so you know when you plant fescue, there's no clumps. It starts out as clumpy, but you know that's why we plant it for yards too. It forms a sod, and right yeah. when you have Grasses that don't allow for spaces between grass clumps and don't allow for those broadleaf people will refer to as weeds, but I I'll, I call them forbs or wildflowers. Mm-hmm. They don't allow for that growth in there, and then weeds has a negative connotation, right? But most people know it as weeds. We're weeds. gonna call them forbs from now on. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell my wife I'll be like, no, don't pick the forbs in the garden. Gosh, I hate right, yeah. forbs. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's so like the planting of fescue, and fescue is a wildly successful non-native grass. Mm-hmm. Biologists largely consider it invasive because it does. It spreads. It spreads very well. Right. And it has invaded places that has not been planted, which is an issue. So we have we have these non-native grasses that we've planted all over the landscape. A lot of it specifically for um, forage plantings, whether it's hayfield or pastures. And you know what, what made fescue so popular? Timothy and orchard grass can eat, can be grazed out. If you eat it too low, it, it reacts somewhat like our native grasses. If you hammer it too hard, you will kill it out. It'll die. And then you have a bunch of weeds in your field again. Okay. Fescue, you can you can graze it extremely hard and it will it will grow back. Which is why so many people wanted it, right? Sure. I mean you could abuse it. It made it made management simpler and you would always have some now granted, as you've seen this year, in drought years it doesn't it's a cool season grass. It does not like droughty summers, and yeah. it, will, it will die back. And you have producers that have issues having enough livestock or feed for their livestock, which is where warm season grasses come in. And in the eighties and nineties, we started planting Bermuda mm-hmm. in the more kind of from from here south, yeah, where Bermuda would grow because Bermuda is a warm season grass. It doesn't tolerate cold as well. Right. Um, now with with climate change. People in Missouri, Ozarks are growing Bermuda somewhat successfully, at least. That was not the case 10 years ago. Really? I never saw Bermuda. I never knew what Bermuda was mm-hmm. as a yeah. kid in Missouri. Yeah. It's there now. Um, but Bermuda is largely a problem from here or really central Arkansas south. So, like, you don't see a lot of fescue in central or southern Arkansas. It's, mm-hmm. it's Bermuda, Bahia. It's warm season grasses that are, are more of the issue. But, again, those are warm season non-native grasses. Um, and we brought those from... From Europe, um, some of those mean? are uh, most of our most of our species that grow well in our climates here are from kind of that Eurasia mm-hmm. area, kind oh, of that Bermuda. Berm- some of them, some of them are some of the more southern warm season stuff. There are some like species that did come from either like China or Africa too, huh. um, like kogan grass, which is a big issue right now. That's an Asian species, mm-hmm. um, warmer, humid climate. I don't know if we'll see kogan grass be an issue this far north or not, but it's mm-hmm. it's coming. Yeah, I know uh, Oklahoma State develops a lot of Bermuda grass as well. <laughs> yep. So there's still people that develop. You know, it's still an, it's an agronomic function, and there's mm-hmm. there's an argument made for it has its place potentially on the landscape. Um, I think there's still people there's still people in in central and south Arkansas and in these other states that are converting to natives even from Bermuda now too because they produce more, they have less. Bermuda is extremely input high on an annual basis. If you want Bermuda to perform at its best ability, you have to really give it a lot of nitrogen and fertilizer. And, you know, right now that's extremely expensive. 
So your return on investment with Bermuda pasture and hayfields is down or even potentially negative. Mm. Um, and native warm season grasses developed in this area. They developed with the soil types that we have here because there are n- native grasses that have been here for tens of thousands of years. Mm. Um, our soils here and, and most of North America, not all of North America, are, are low nutrient soils. We have low nitrogen soils. We have you know low P and K soils, somewhat... Um, a lot of our soils are limestone derivative soils, mm-hmm. so the the pH levels are different than what fescue and Bermuda like to have. So, like that's why a lot of producers have to put lime and fertilizer on their fields. Well, that's that's all inputs that cost money, um, and there's there's certainly a, an economic case to be had for being more fro- profitable with at least having some natives on your landscape on your property for even for forage production, mm-hmm. and it's going to be better wildlife habitat because of the structure that it has when it grows. But yeah, so we've converted a lot of the landscape to non-native grasses. A lot of that happened after mechanized equipment became a thing and we started bringing in all these species that we've now discovered in other parts of the world because we've been to more of them now. Yeah, right. So, you know, the heyday for quail was early 1900s through about the 50s or 60s. Mm -hmm. And then we certainly started to see things fall off. We started getting to the point where We've converted enough of the landscape. Um, dozers and tractors made it to where we could control brush because um, brush was seen as a negative thing by most people. More yeah. Brush means that there's not grass growing there. So if we get rid of the brush, we'll have more grass, we can mm-hmm. graze more animals. So right. um, mechanized equipment made it easier to control brush, to take down trees in other areas for more farm ground. Um, you know, a lot of the expansive farming wasn't nearly as expansive as it was until that largely mechanized equipment came along either. Um, a lot of the farming in some of those more fertile places was a little bit more advanced more quickly, but it, it definitely whole scale changed after, after World War II. And then we just had a wow. lag time of about 20 years where it just took us that long to have enough of an impact on the landscape to where we finally hit a tipping point where we had degraded the habitat or the amount of habitat on a landscape as a whole to a point where Quail numbers in particular started really falling off. The, basically, the capacity of the land became lower than what was existing at the time or in the past and, and has since gone down. Right. So basically, prior to prior to 19, prior to the 40s, or basically in the 40s, the landscape as a whole was fairly conducive to quail. We had all the pastures and hay fields were, were native grasses and, mm-hmm. and wildflowers. Um, we didn't have introduced grasses for that, so... Everything was native. We had trees and open woodlands. People still use burning to manage those areas because we didn't have mechanized equipment to do other things to it. And other than there was rampant overgrazing because that was a very big issue in the Ozarks as a whole, but across a lot of the landscape. But um, just because, you know, people were subsistence farming and we had a lot of people that put animals out there because they needed them. Right. I'm not blaming folks, but yeah, a lot of that was overgrazed in the past. Um, but, you know, and there was still largely a landscape that was native that supported habitat that supported quail and other wildlife species. Mm-hmm. We finally got to the tipping point when we started converting all the stuff to non-natives, ripping out, ripping out areas that had been left alone because they couldn't physically do it before. But now that we had mechanized equipment, we could. And we just hit a tipping point in the sixties and seventies to where we got low enough amount of habitat on the landscape for quail versus the stuff that's no longer usable that numbers really started falling off. And that precipitous fall 
went all the way through the 80s, you know, and we, we'll talk about people that would, people will talk about still having places where they could go and find good quail numbers in the 80s, and that was true. Yeah. And there's still places now where we can go find still good quail numbers, but. We'll get to that. We really fell off in the 80s, fell off in the 90s, um, through the early 2000s, and we started to kind of level off um, a little bit, but across the range, quail have seen like an 87% decline in their total population. That's a qu- mm. across the entire Bob White range. So the entirety of the the eastern U.S. south of, you know, kind of a line from somewhere in northern Iowa going east, you know, south of the Great Lakes kind okay. of deal. Yeah. Yeah, what, what would you say the rough range is of quail in America? Yep, so kind of that whole eastern, southeastern, so all of the southeast going up the eastern seaboard to... Maryland, New York, okay. up into Pennsylvania a little bit, and then kind of skirting the southern edge of the the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. heading west across. They were up into a little bit of southern Michigan, northern Iowa, maybe southern Minnesota, and then it kind of cuts down into, like, northeast Nebraska, goes mm-hmm. through Nebraska and down through, like, mm-hmm. a little bit in far southeastern corner of Wyoming, north northeast in eastern Colorado. So your moderate temperatures. Moderate. So, so okay. there's there's a point at which quail aren't going to go any farther north because of sheer number of snow cover days in the winter. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they just can't, they're not big enough birds to be able to survive that. Does, um, that. does that range go all the way down to the coast of like Louisiana? Yes. So okay. in the southeast, all the way down to the coast. So it's from that line you just described all South. the way down. And then, you know, they go down through... Parts of eastern Oklahoma, or eastern Colorado, Oklahoma, and the line kind of jots around, yeah. and like western Texas like and New Mexico. Well. But it's like bobwhite quail go all the way down into central Mexico. And you're talking about bobwhite quail. Are there other, like, what other species of quail are there in, in the U.S.? Yep. So at that, at that edge of that range, on, so that's the only species of quail in the eastern U.S. Okay. On, the, on that western edge of the range, kind of in that, Eastern Colorado, Western Kansas, like kind of right on, and there's a little bit of overlap going down through like Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, maybe in well, over into Arizona and a little bit. There's scaled quail, mm-hmm. which is a gorgeous little species of quail. Scaled, scaled, scaled. Yeah, so their feathers they they almost look like scales. Oh, cool. The patterning on the feathers, for, probably for really blue, dry regions. Blue quail, very dry regions. Yeah, yeah kind of short grass, almost deserty type growth like you'll oh yeah those are pretty like in new mexico and arizona like you'll shoot scaled quail that are hiding under like choya mm. like like cactus you know mm. i don't uh, know what choya cool. is yeah it's a very cool little cactus yeah. so how and then there's and then there's desert quail. then we have our desert quail. we have merns quail we have california kale quail gambles quail valley quail you know and those go throughout the desert southwest and then going up in through like the intermountain west and and utah and california and washington oregon stuff like that so how did we regulate quail? You know, I, I've never grown up quail hunting, so I don't really know the history of, you know, regulations, conservation. How was it, you know, back whenever we were seeing this big decline? Could that be attributed to it at all? Or, or? No, not really. I mean, there used to obviously be a lot more quail hunters on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like, even historically, there were, well, as the title of that book, even historically, when it came to quail hunting, quail hunting has its own kind of unique history. And very early on, quail hunting in the southeastern U.S. was a 
was a more gentleman sport type hunting initially. Mm-hmm. Throughout the Midwest, quail hunting was absolutely like an average Joe with the mutt bird dog, let's go out and shoot some quail for yeah. dinner. Yeah. So quail hunting across the country has kind of a varied history. It was always kind of a, a gentleman sport in the southeast. Um, through the Appalachians, the Ozarks, you know, Appalachian Ozark people like to eat stuff. Yeah. I'm from the same cloth. I like to eat them. Right. You know, it was the average guy going out and, and shooting birds. But even here, the people that were doing that, like people understood quail. They saw that they were in coveys. It was even back then, you, you there's historical books about quail hunting that you can read. And people knew like, you know, we would never shoot more than half of a covey out and we would leave so many birds. And, right. And and move on and not mm-hmm. not continue to hunt that covey and stuff like that, which is which is good practice. Yeah, and it's yeah. good practice if you're the only one hunting that that piece of property. If there's other people that come in behind you, it's like, so if you found a covey of twelve birds and <laughs> yeah. you shot it down, honestly, you shouldn't shoot anymore once they for sure down to like eight. Ten would be better. Okay, but let's say you found a covey of sixteen birds. Yeah, and you shot eight out of it. You and your hunting partner. <laughs> It's down to eight. Okay, yeah. we're going to leave this alone. It's down to eight. We're not going to yeah. hunt anymore. Yeah. Well, tomorrow somebody else is going to come in behind you and put that covey up and on the covey rise. Maybe they shoot two. Now that covey's down to six. Yeah. Mm. Then that covey goes You're and just combines. it in half. It. Yeah. Oh, and then then that and either that covey then like we get a cold night. They don't have enough birds. They perish. They freeze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or that covey combines with another covey that got shot down to six. Now we have a covey of twelve. Now we used to have two coveys of twelve. Now we have one covey of twelve. Yeah. Party mm-hmm. three comes in. It's like, oh, there's twelve birds. We're gonna go shoot four out of it. Now yeah. we're down to eight again. Yeah. So that can happen. Yeah. It's probably more of a modern day issue. And I have seen areas where I think, on a local level, you can have issues on public lands where something like that can happen, and mm-hmm. we can have an impact. Um, but on a landscape level, no. So hunting, hunting was not an issue with the decline of quail. The decline of quail was can completely be explained with the whole scale change of habitat across. And this sounds crazy, mind-blowing, but the whole scale change of habitat across the entirety of the eastern part mm. of this country. Wow. What, basically nothing in the eastern U.S. looks like it did 200 that's years That's cool, ago. and it understand, or it explains why you're so knowledgeable about, like, all the history of, of our region and... And the different types of grasses, what what does well for wildlife and what doesn't. It's not a matter of like, you know, the deer population not doing good, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. Which was 100% hunting costs. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's not like that where you can attribute it to people just shooting everything they saw. Yeah. Now, and again, I mean, I'm not going to say there was no impact. Like, there were market hunters for quail too. Mm -hmm. But quail are a vastly different, I mean, quail are very good at reproducing quail numbers can boom and bust on a given year based on weather and stuff like that. And like, they're very good at what they do. Deer, deer breed and reproduce relatively quickly for a large animal, but it's still mm-hmm. like one to two every year mm-hmm. per doe. Yeah. Maybe. Um, whereas a quail, you know, a hen will incubate a nest, a male quail will incubate a nest. They might incubate two nests throughout the year. Really? Now, what? when you say so, incubate, yeah. what, what do you mean? <laughs> like they'll they actually sit on the eggs to keep them warm? And Yeah, so like when quail break out of their cubbies in the spring and, and shuffle around and they... Quail don't live in cubbies year-round, right? They live in cubbies in the fall and winter. Okay. In the spring, they'll, they'll break up and they'll be more individual or maybe paired. Um, but you hear when you hear males whistling on the landscape in the spring, those males... Just like any other grassland mm. songbird, that's a male setting up his territory and he's trying to attract a mate. 
right? So is that the? <laughs> yes, that's the typical right. Bob White. Bob White. Bob White Dude, call. That was good. Yeah, that was right. Yeah, um, I didn't know why. Why, like you know, that whistle is made by a quail or a Bob White yep. quail, but now just, I do. Just like any, you know, anytime you hear other birds singing in the spring, they're setting up their territory and they're saying, "Hey, hey, oh. ladies, look at me. Hey, look at me." And just quail, like a, I got all this strutting. I got almost. all this territory. Yeah, and and quail are very good at reproducing. They are absolutely like a polyamorous species mm-hmm. multiple partners they don't care they're trying mm-hmm. to they're very good at increasing genetic diversity um, a single hen will mate with multiple male partners a single clutch of eggs will have multiple different um, hen and, and male really oh really it. yes so basically you'll have a couple daddies for one clutch mm-hmm, for yeah. sure okay at, usually at least two um, huh. But I mean, how many how many eggs does a hen lay? The average nest for a, a northern bobwhite is twelve to fourteen. So, and again, wow. so like I said, so a hen once they pair, some of them don't. Some of them will just pair, but most of them will breed with multiple different partners. A hen will, and not always. Only I'm going to start throwing out some percentages, and this is always dangerous. <laughs> maybe a quarter of males will 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 sit on a nest. So a hen will lay a nest of eggs, and okay. that male will go incubate that nest and we'll hatch that nest out and that male will take care and raise those chicks really and the hen will go lay her own nest and sit on that oh so that obviously increases the reproductive potential of that species yeah then that hen we we know that quail will readily make that hen could readily sit on two to three nests and then we have known instances of a single hen laying and incubating four nests in a given year at one time not at one time. So okay. they'll, they'll lay a nest, incubate it, hatch it out, raise those chicks for a couple weeks. Okay. Go lay another nest. Wow. Incubate it, hatch mm. them out. Raise, so, so some, they are reproducing machines. They can be. But again, so like quail are made to die. Yeah. Um, species that reproduce that quickly, it's because they die very readily. So what's a lifespan for a quail? Less than a year. <laughs> on average. So on average, and we count that. So like once a, once a chick hatches from an egg, it counts as a quail. Okay. So obviously, in order for a male and a hen, for a rooster and a hen to breed and lay eggs, like those are over a year old, right? Like they've made it through a season. Well, at, at least almost a year old. Because okay. let's say they hatched out in July and they're breeding next April, so mm-hmm. they're not even a year yet. Okay. Once the quail gets to be an adult, their survival increases very well. Okay. But the average lifespan of the average quail, if you count, if a quail counts once it hatches out of the egg. So of all the nests gotcha. quail lay, yeah. 40% nest success would be, like, really good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in in low-quality habitat areas and low-quality landscape areas, nest success is usually lower. It's, like, 20 25%. Yeah. 20 25% nest success is not high enough to sustain a population. That's why we see quail numbers going down. If we have good habitat areas, nest success on average in – best quality habitat areas in a in a landscape where there is a lot of quality habitat and we have a sustainable population of quail. And you have favorable is, weather. Yep. And nest success is about 40%. So 40%, 40% nest of, success will keep us at a stable to growing population. Okay. And that would be, you said, 12 to 14 eggs in a clutch. Yep. And so those are the nests like that actually or, hatch. Five or six, basically. So, and then once they hatch, it's something, it's crazy. The vast majority of them don't make it to like six months, hmm. right? So like they die from exposure, like we were talking about earlier. If it yeah. rains on them and they get wet for too long, a chick can die from exposure like mm-hmm. that. 
if it's dewy and we have a field that's not managed and there's not enough open space between grass clumps and they can't dry out because they're always bumping into grass and staying wet from dew, mm-hmm. they could die from exposure. Which comes back to the non-native grasses that right. are that are that are designed to grow in clumps and grow really thick. Right. And, and they don't have yeah. burns too. You don't have burns. See, this is or what, just the fact that we have so much rainfall in the state that we grow a ton of vegetation. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was saying earlier. In drought years where we're not growing as much vegetation and things aren't as lush and green and 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 they're kind of crispy and brown and things are a little more sparse. Great year for quail. We yeah. should we should see good success this year. Yeah, so, so we should see good nest success and good survival of quail from this summer. How, gotcha. how do you track that? Are you guys able to track it very well? Um, we numbers tra- quail numbers a bit. So we we do surveys across the state. There's a roadside survey that happens every year. Um, game and fish biologists, quail forever biologists do surveys on specific project areas that we've been focusing on for the last five years. Um, there are some researchers in the state that have done some quail survival studies, but the closest thing to here is here in southwest Missouri. Uh, the Missouri Department of Conservation and some MU grad students have been doing a five-year survival study and habitat use study on on different types of management areas for quail up there, mm-hmm. and, and they're showing a lot of those same numbers. And, and quail are one of, if not the most studied species in North America. They're thousands of publications of research studies on quail from the 1940s through today. I so there's it. tons I, of research on quail. I feel like why? anybody who knows something about quail, like knows all of it yeah. about quail. <laughs> why, why are they so heavily studied? Because they're going away? Well, I mean, this, the research in the 40s, stuff like that, it was just, I don't know. I think it's just, there was always, there's always an interest in quail as a, as a as a species as a whole, they were. I mean, they used to be a very common bird on the landscape, and yeah. they're not now. But even back then, they were a common bird on the landscape that were a common bird that was eaten as well. And mm-hmm. it was just one of those species that there was a lot of studies. I mean, Aldo Leopold and his son uh, and his son did quail research studies in Missouri and in and in Texas. Um, there's a lot of quail studies out of Texas historically and through today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some the only I've only found a few research papers looking directly at like game birds other than quail that are older than some of the quail studies. And, and some mm-hmm. of those are like on some of the prairie chicken studies that were done in Texas. And I think the earliest one I found was like 1917 or 1919 or okay. something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and that was just looking at like, Oh yep. You know, prairie chickens eat grasshoppers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Great. Sweet. Story. We know that a plus. Yeah. yeah. But Man. yeah, no, widely, widely studied in, uh-huh. You know, there's a lot of things. There's always there's always something to learn. I'm not, you know, not going to downplay research. It's important, and we definitely need to keep doing it. But we know a lot of things about quail, and we know how to manage for them, and we know what we need. And, and the hard part is now, really, in a lot of the research looking at now is um, how do we best focus our attention? How do we best focus the limited conservation dollars that we have yeah. to actually make an impact on a landscape level to get quail back at a noticeable level for the normal person, right? Yeah. To me, that's the key here. So, and that kind of brings us into like where we are today with quail conservation. Yeah. Real quick before we go there, and I know I want to go there for sure. One one thing, and, and I feel like I I would be remiss to not mention this or at least ask because I feel like so many people hold this opinion. What about the impact of predators and predator populations with fur prices being down? Trapping is not as popular as it as it used to be. What about the impact of predator populations who eat ground nesting birds like quail, like turkey, what kind of impact have they had on quail? So 
I'll start with this. The what I what I always talk about when people want to talk about that topic is predator management is is not the answer here. It's okay. predation management, which okay. is the answer. So predators have increased. Yes, we have fewer people trapping on the landscape now, but that's that's and fur prices have hurt and we don't trap as much, but before humans before before we had trappers largely on the landscape through the mid eighteen hundreds on, you know, all the same predators were here. Mm. They coexisted with these species for thousands of years. Predators themselves are not the cause of the of the decline in quail or any other game species, except for in very specific potential instances. Um once you have so like you have a covey hanging on on your property or a couple of coveys on your property, the increase in fur bears, small fur bears in in a lot of states and a lot of the eastern U.S. and across the Great Plains, like we have fur bears in the Great Plains, we have you know raccoons and skunks across all of the Great Plains. That you know there largely wasn't raccoons present in the Great Plains in like Kansas, Nebraska, the really? Dakotas until until we had large-scale tree encroachment here in the last 30 years. Mm. Like, you could go to the Dakotas and, you know, until, you know, through the 1950s and 60s, like, there were no... There were no raccoons. They didn't They didn't occur Jeez, there. Really? I see about 10, 10 every time I sit in the deer stand. They, yeah, <laughs> and, then, you know, they didn't occur in Kansas. They didn't occur in central and western Oklahoma. Again, so predators have increased in numbers because the habitat we have on the landscape now is more conducive to small mammal and predator habitat than it is to specifically quail habitat. Which comes than back it is to, to turkey habitat. Yeah. So the change in habitat on landscape, which has been a detriment to quail and turkeys, has been a boon for small mammal predators. Mm. Um, and that's also helped with their expansion into the Great Plains. Again, like a lot of these small mammal predators didn't exist in large swaths of the Great Plains. They do now because there are more trees there. Right. It comes back to the whole idea of like how how the mechanized equipment that we had to change farmland and, and drastically impact the landscape has affected true populations and, right. and native grasses and native plants. So and the, and the equipment was how we cleared things. Um, but the issue with like the increase in trees on the landscape in the Great Plains, the issue with the increase of trees on the landscape here throughout. Arkansas, whether it's the Ozarks, the Wachita's, or anywhere in the state, is largely because of now the lack of fire that we have on the landscape. Okay, yeah. So taking away fire, taking away that ability to keep keep those encroaching trees at bay, because mm-hmm. trees are going to do. We we changed the mechanics of the landscape, and we changed the mechanics of of the natural system by taking away a large driving force in prescribed in in fire. Mm-hmm. You know, humans are now largely scared of again as a whole in arkansas we're we're pretty well accepting of it for the most part yeah but it's still not nearly as much as we need on the landscape and but so without, without fire states. We, yeah with relative to some of the, especially like the west coast states yeah like large. we've been in a drought for months all summer and we had a burn ban for like a week maybe mm-hmm. here yeah. a few days and i mean it was dry yeah all summer and it was dry and you know and it's hard in a human dominated landscape that that's a necess- necessary thing and and as biologists we get that but on the other hand as biologists like man you know like 100 years ago this is exactly when this whole place would have burned yeah. like right now you're like let it burn <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know obviously that's just something that we like to think about but it's just not 
generally feasible here. We there are, there are methods and models to allow for that type of fire still on the landscape, and there are people in like the the ravines region, the hills and ravines of of Nebraska. There's a there's a researcher that works at the University of Nebraska that's an Ozark native from Missouri himself. Um, he works in Nebraska now. He's developing a model for large scale use of fire in summer during droughts to reduce or kill cedar trees in the grassland landscape where they shouldn't exist. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's doing it in a way that, you know, we just have to have large scale fire breaks and, and do it in a way where we can control it. But he's absolutely out there trying to get people to accept fire in a weather pattern or time of year that has for the most part for the past 60 years been unacceptable. Yeah. Right. Right. And there's a possibility for that here in the Ozarks too. Um, You know, there's still, it's still common practice. If you drive through the central Ozarks in the fall, you'll see people that, you know, they have their houses, they're in the woods, they'll burn their whole yards off, right? They'll burn off all the leaves litter after the leaves fall off. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe they don't all realize why they're doing that. Yeah. But the practice of doing that is, okay, well, if we have a wildfire this winter while everything's dry, my yard's already burned off. The fire's not going to burn my house. No fuel. Exactly. Mm, That's why we do that. So it's, it's basically they're, they're practicing a fire wise practice by burning (laughs) off their homestead area. Yeah. And that is, that was a very common thing 60 to a hundred years ago. And maybe it's just a relic now. Maybe they are doing that and knowing exactly what they're doing. But I think a lot of people probably don't. It's just like, well, it's we've like always burned it tradition. off. Tradition. Like, yeah, let's, exactly. let's be scared, it down. Let's be scared of a wildfire. Or we could do a controlled fire yeah. and pre- like prevent all of our, our stuff burning. Right. Yeah, so same, so right, imagine an Ozarks landscape where we can get every landowner in. Let's say we could get every landowner in Sharp County yeah. to burn off everything around their homestead every October. And then December 1st, let's just go light the whole county on fire and see what happens. <laughs> we won't hurt any property. We yeah, won't hurt any people. Oh, I know. <laughs> let's Crazy. set it all on fire. But I mean, there, there's, there's, there's real discussions about like, okay, how can we get a landscape level firewise community where, where we could actually have landscape level fire like that? Like that, right. that's a size of fire that was not uncommon historically in the state. This podcast is hosted by Kyle Veet. Co-hosted by Adam Treese and Kyle Plunkett and produced by Daniel Matthews. Thanks for listening. Until next time.